Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. All right, guys, welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am deeply honored today to be sitting down with Mr. John Verveke. Um, I've tweeted out recently his YouTube lecture series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which I think is something just extraordinarily profound um, and very important for, I think, where many people are in the world today, suffering from this crisis of meaning. And, you know, your series really helped put a, a good frame around it about what's going on. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. It's a great pleasure uh, being here, and thank you for the kind words in your tweet and what you just said. It's uh, it's very uh, very much appreciated. Uh, as I as I often say, I, I'm I'm socially phobic by nature, and so <laughs> encouragement is is very very uh, very very helpful to me. <laughs> well, I'm I'm a bit introverted myself, so we're we're, we're both out of our comfort zone here. <laughs> um, maybe if you could just start just giving a general background for my audience on yourself, your work. Um, how you've been spending the past several decades of your life? <laughs> um, I guess the uh, what's most germane up front is I'm a associate professor at the University of Toronto. I'm a cognitive psychologist and a cognitive scientist. I have degrees in cognitive science and in philosophy. Um, so that's sort of the gist of my academic background. Um, Scientifically, as a cognitive scientist and a psychologist, I study a bunch of phenomena that I think are deeply interrelated. I study intelligence, which I understand is the property, uh, our capacity for being general problem solvers. I study rationality, and we can talk about the difference between intention, uh, between intelligence and rationality. I, I study consciousness, which may seem, what does that have to do with an inte- intelligence and rationality? It has actually, it turns out, a lot to do with both. And then, uh, you know, related to that, I study altered states of consciousness, uh, particularly those associated with mindfulness and things on what I call the, uh, you know, the insight continuum, insight, flow, transformative experience. I study all of those. Um, and then that leads me into a topic that I also study. I publish on all of these, uh, namely wisdom. What is wisdom and why, why do we seek it uh, without having very good, clear, um, cultural guidance these days as to what it is. In fact, uh, 
that leads me into sort of my overarching project, which is what I call the meaning crisis. And we can talk about what meaning is progressively as this unfolds. I take a, a 50 hour lecture series to try and unpack that uh, really complicated uh, question. And it's an important question because it looks like, and the, re the empirical research on this is growing very rapidly, uh, that meaning in life, um, which is different from the meaning of a sentence. When we use meaning in life, we're using the meaning of a sentence as a metaphor to point to something. We're trying to point to this thing that human beings really seem to really fundamentally need and seek out. Um, but it's very problematic when, when they seek it out. Um, they can often fall into failure. And that has to do with, um, wisdom. And you may say, well, how? And it goes, the basic idea is something like this, and I want to unpack this with you, so I'm going to just say it in a very cursory manner. The, the mechanisms by which we're intelligent, by which we try to make sense of the world, they're dynamically self-organizing. That was one of the things that I think attracted you to my work, mm. right? Um, but for that very same reason, the very same principles that make it adaptive, dynamically self-organizing, are the same principles that make us subject to self-deception. Mm -hmm. And that, and those, that self-deceptive, uh, vulnerability makes us equally vulnerable to self-destructive and other destructive behavior. And that this undermines the kinds of connections we are, the, the dynamic living connections we're seeking when we're seeking a meaning life. Hopefully I'll get, I'll be able to get beyond metaphor when we talk about this. Uh, so right now, what, at least a preliminary definition is, Wisdom is what allows you to overcome, systematically and reliably overcome self-deceptive, self-destructive, other destructive behavior, and reliably enhance those living senses of connection to yourself, to each other in the world that we are pointing to when we say meaning in life. And then I can tell you what the meaning crisis is. We have an information glut and we have a wisdom famine. Mm -hmm. People do not know where to go. Um, and this is for various historical reasons. Um, uh, the cultivation of wisdom has, uh, not exclusively, but predominantly been associated with religious traditions. Mm -hmm. And as the West has lost a shared religious framework, and I'm not, I'm not advertising for going back to anything. I'm just, I'm just mm -hmm. stating a historical fact, right? We have lost, we have lost the, the traditions and the guides and the ecologies of practices that would help us cultivate wisdom. So, I do this all the time with my students. I'll say, wherever you go for information, well, that's easy. Social media, blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. And they have a glut of that. And then I'll say, where do you go for knowledge? And they pause a little bit and they say, well, you know, science and the university. And then I'll, I'll say, where do you go for wisdom? And there's a silence. Mm -hmm. And that silence is not, it's not just sort of an empty silence. It's a corrosive, eroding silence. What? Because we cannot, I mean, who, who among us does not want to be less foolish and flourish more? We cannot avoid wisdom. We either pursue it explicitly and in an organized, coherent manner, or we, we pursue it implicitly in an incoherent, disorganized, fragmented manner. And that's what you see lots of people doing. In fact, I would, I would, I would propose to you that very often when people say they're spiritual but not religious, and this is the defining feature of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, those who have no re official religious affiliation, mm. what they mean is that they're 
cobbling together in an autodidactic, semi-reflective, right, fashion, various practices and uh, idea sets to try and cultivate wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, and the chances of that happening in an autodidactic, mostly implicit, incoherent fashion are quite low. And then people turn to social media to try and augment their strategies, but social media is largely designed to augment our cognitive biases and our right. self-deceptive practices, and it tends to make things worse rather than better. So that's, that's sort of touching on the meaning crisis and how it relates to the other stuff I do. Yeah, that's a great framework uh, for understanding, I think, the direction of this conversation. And you're already alluding to what I would say is in the, you know, the digital age, we have these new tools that are consuming a lot of our conscious awareness, and it's actually reshaping the way we think and interact Very much, yeah. with ourselves and one another in the world at large. So I think what would be helpful is if we go into a few definitions, because even like I mentioned to you offline, some of these things are not clearly distinct in my mind. Yeah. Um, and the thing, so in the background of this, um, to tie this back into socioeconomics, which is what this show typically focuses on, is, you know, you mentioned um, problem solving yep. and how yep. that's a very key element of being, right? Where we're, yep. every day yep. we wake up, we go out, we've, we've got some problems to solve. Um, so individually, this is something we do. And this is something that we largely satisfy through the market, right? Markets are actually these forums of free exchange where we solve problems. You know, yeah. we, we discover prices, we innovate, uh, et cetera. And then I think that in that scope, money is one of the most instrumental and important tools in the world because it's actually the, what, what wires together this problem-solving entity we call the market or, or wires together our consciousnesses to, to form a market. And in that way, it's, it's, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you would almost describe us humanity as a meaning making species or an identity ascribing species. You talk often about this, um, how identity co-originates, right. In both yeah, yep, yep. we're creating an identity for ourselves and ascribing it to others. And yep. that's kind of how we, Create, yeah, generate yeah. the salience landscape and whatnot. So I just think there's very deep interconnections here. And I discovered your work, got very excited about it, reached out to you. So let's try to flow into yeah. this, I think, with some definitions, and hopefully that lays a foundation for further conversation. How would you define consciousness? Oh, that's the one I would define last, perhaps. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's the holy grail of cognitive science, trying to explain consciousness. I would point um, your listeners, if they want to hear um, a very long argument about this and presented in a dialogical manner, there's a, a, a series I have called Untangling the World Not that I did with Greg Enriquez, which is a, a comprehensive attempt uh, to give uh, uh, a comprehensive uh, uh, account of what consciousness is. Um, well, let me let me let me go back to the problem solving, and and, and in this way, I want to try and I want to one of the things I want to argue is that we should try and understand these things interdefinitionally. That our definition of consciousness and our definition of intelligence will turn out to be importantly related to each other. In fact, one of the criticisms I have of some existing work 
in the philosophy of mind is that these two questions are separated in a way I think that is, is unjustifiable. So let's start at the beginning. Um, and I, I just thought of something. I want to add one more definition that we should talk about, which All is right. the psychotechnology. Because oh, yes. that, right, that, that'll get us into distributed cognition and, uh, and, and, you know, things like coinage and moneyage and the money and their effect on uh, individual and distributed mm. cognition. So problem solving. So again, let's go back to it. Um, what does it mean to say? So you, you can see this when people, and this distinction is even emerging quite clearly now in work on artificial intelligence. We distinguish between artificial intelligence and what's called artificial general intelligence. Mm. So an artificial intelligence is basically a machine that could do something that until recently had to be done by an intelligent human being, like a bank teller. Until very recently, we had to have human beings to do that, but now we have artificial intelligence to do that. Mm. Now, art that's an important project. It's important socioeconomically. It has political and cultural ramifications. I don't, I'm not trying to disparage it. Uh, people who do that, I understand why they do that. I'm just making a distinction here because I want to talk what's, about what's called artificial general intelligence because that is a scientific philosophical endeavor. This is the, this is try to create artificial intelligence that is like your intelligence and mm. my intelligence. What is that general intelligence? Well, it means you're a general problem solver. What that means is in very many, many domains, you can solve very many problems. You can solve problems about learning how to swim in the water domain, and you can solve problems about how to interact with Mexican culture when you're in a museum in Mexico City. Mm. Like, 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 try to get a single machine to do that right now is incomprehensible right mm. now. Um, so does that give you, first of all, a general sense of yes. the target? I'm, I'm at least shooting at. Good. Yes. Okay, so... What the work I've done, and I've been helped by a lot of people along this uh, on this journey: Tim Lilliclap, uh, Blake Richards, uh, Leo Ferraro, uh, Gary Haben Hodison, uh, just a ton of people. Uh, so I don't want to, right? And and most most importantly, current work I'm doing with Brett Anderson and Mark Miller. Here's my proposal, what this general ability is. And we, we, we have psychometric ways of measuring this general intelligence. Mm. So let's go back to your problem solving. So what's a general issue in all, almost all problems you're trying to solve? The issue that's facing you is that there is way, 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 two more ways, way, way, too much information available in the environment, in, in you, Right. And in the potential relations between what's in your long term memory. So this is often there's many ways people talk about this, the combatorial explosion of uh, of information. Right. Uncertainty. Right. It's a kind of uncertainty, but there's mm. two there. There's you, you don't want to identify them because mm. there, you could have you could have each piece of information could be certain and you could still face a combinatorial explosion mm. of, of the information available to you. Oh, gotcha. You could have limited information. And that nevertheless, that information would be polluted by noise and you would be uncertain about it. So, mm. right. So you want to, you don't want to, you don't want to, uh, 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 you're right to want to question the relation between them, but I think you don't want to just readily identify them together. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So the, the problem is you can't search all the information. And, and this is, so this isn't what you can't do. You cannot. You cannot check each piece of information and see if it's needed for the problem at hand. 
Mm. Like, so I'm trying to talk to you right now. Is that piece of the carpet right now relevant to <laughs> talking to you well? No. It it's not. Well, what if the what if that catches on fire? Then it is. Yeah. Right. Is the background behind you relevant to talking to you right now? Well, a little bit. I needed to focus. What about do you see? You see how many things I can point to and possible patterns. Right. right? Uh, is there an important relationship between the temperature of the room I'm in right now and my understanding of you? Well, of course not. Well, there is if it goes up to 105 degrees Celsius. Right. right? And so. Right. You see what I'm trying to say. And so you can't check everything and say, is that relevant? Is that relevant? Is that relevant? Is that relevant? Because yes. it would take you the rest of the history of the universe to do it. Right. So this is what fascinates me about you. And this is what I dedicated my career to and other people. Right now, you do it like that. You zero in on relevant information. Yeah. And, 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 and here's here. And this sounds like a Zen Cohen. You're intelligent because you ignore most of the information. Yes. There's a yes. deep connection between intelligence and a certain kind of ignorance. Yes. Now, here's the thing. You can't do that perfectly because the only way to do it perfectly would be to check all the pieces of information. But yeah. you do it so well and in so many different domains that you can solve your problems and achieve your goals. I call that ability relevance realization. And I'm, and I'm playing on both meanings of the word realization, mm. right? You're becoming aware of it and it's becoming real for you. Right. I argue with Leo Ferraro and all these other people I've, that general intelligence is exactly that capacity for relevance realization. That's what, that's the ability that makes you intelligent. That's the ability we're struggling to give to computers when we're trying to give them artificial general intelligence right now there's a lot of debate about is that like one simple function or is it a bunch of functions i won't go into that right now all i want to do is establish this idea that what we're trying to do is relevance realization let me is ask that, you that yes no no it's excellent so the relevance itself this is uh, i'll lay out some things here and then um Hopefully it'll frame the question. The relevance itself seems like it could only be, it has to pertain to an aim or a purpose of some kind, yes. Yes. right? The yes. system or the intelligence needs to have some direction that it's going, that it can determine what's relevant to that aim and yes. ignore, ignore what's not. And I love, um, there's actually, Peterson gave an example of this once where he says that it seems to be almost the entire purpose of consciousness is to try and move things into the unconscious. Right. Like if you're playing piano, maybe not the entire purpose, I may be stepping yeah. outside the boundary, one of the main yeah. functions. So if you're playing the piano, you know, you have to pay very close attention to how you move your fingers and how you position your hands. Yeah. But yeah. the entire aim of playing the piano is to be able to do it without thinking. And there's a there's a North Whitehead quote that very closely mirrors yeah. this that you've probably heard. Um, I, I think about it a lot and he, essentially saying that. The conventional wisdom is we need to think before acting, but the precise opposite is true, that civilization advances with the more important operations we can perform without needing to think about them. Yes. Um, yes. And in a way, again, back to this relationship between consciousness and the market, that's what the market is trying to do as well. The market's trying to solve these problems um, in a way that people don't need to think about them anymore, right? When you jump in your car, turn the key yeah. and press the gas, there's a lot of complex operations taking place that the market has already solved for you. 
that you now don't need to think. You can think about you know what's going the politics at work on your commute in versus how the combustion engine works or something like that. So, um, now I've kind of slid from my question yes. there, but I, I was trying to just connect to this. The conscious awareness seems to be kind of like the aperture through which we're moving things into the unconscious where we don't need to think about them as much so we can go and pursue other aims. So I, I guess how would that pertain to? Uh, but, but, but I think you're putting your finger on where I, exactly yeah. where I want to go next, which is, and there's two things I want to mention and I want to follow it up with you later, um, is that we have to understand that when we talk about intelligence, we don't just mean individual cognition, mm-hmm. individual problem solving. Uh, so, well, I belong to what's called 4E cognitive science, mm-hmm. you know, embodied, embedded, enacted, um, and extended, right? And, and one of the primary ways in which we solve most of our problems, and you've just indicated it, is through distributed cognition. Mm-hmm. So a way of thinking about this is way before uh, the internet linked computers to release the power of distributed computation, which makes this conversation possible. Yes. Culture linked brains, people together to release the power of distributed cognition. Almost mm. everything we do, we do by participating in distributed cognition. Yes. So I want to talk both about individual intelligence and collective intelligence. And we store things differently and solve things differently in those two domains. Um, and one way we might think about one of the things money does is help to set up a relationship between individual cognition yes. and distributed cognition. Right. So that I'd like to follow that up with you. Yes. But I want to go back right. to the primary point you were making. Um, and Peterson, well, I, I, I can call him Jordan. I know him. So Jordan <laughs> is, right, Jordan is pointing to a, a feature of consciousness that has, that has, you know, ha, um, that Bohr and Seth have put their finger on. Um, and so, let me first put it as a question, and we'll move back towards Peterson and Boren Seth. Mo- most, and this is this has been one of the great discoveries uh, of modernity, especially post uh, Freud, right? Is that most of your intelligence is unconscious? Mm. Let me give you an example. You're understanding the sounds that are coming out of my face wall right now, right? How are you doing mm. that? How are you doing that? You have no idea whatsoever. Right. You have that's a and you and try to get a machine to do that. And you quickly understand how complex and sophisticated and intelligent the machine mm-hmm. has to be in order to turn noises into, and we, we still don't have it, where it turns the noises into ideas. Yes. That's just one example of how most of your intelligence is unconscious. Okay? Right. So right. then the question is, why are we conscious at all? And that's that you should stop and savor that question for a minute. Why are we conscious at all? Given that a lot of our intelligence is unconscious and a lot of our problem solving is done with distributed cognition that doesn't require an overarching unified consciousness. Yeah. Why are we conscious? To deal with novelty okay. or something? I mean, ah, yeah. ah, that's a, that's great. That's basically okay. Now note it, and that'll that'll get us to the, the the Peterson point, right? Notice that what you're saying is, I seem to be conscious when I have to confront a particular kind of problem. Mm-hmm. Novelty is part of it, but no, certainly not novel. There's lots of novel stuff again happening on around you. It, you know, there's unexpected movements of certain odors through your room. Right, that's right. novel, and you, you don't care. You don't yeah, care, right? Yeah, yeah. It's irrelevant. 
but 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 it's it's so it's a it's a kind of novelty. So I want you to, uh, in order to help, I want to make a distinction. And again, let's go back to problem solving between two kinds of problems: a well-defined problem and ill-defined problem. Mm. So what constitutes a problem? A problem is when I have an initial state that is different, as you indicated a few minutes ago, from a goal state I want to be in. So for example, if I'm thirsty and I don't have water right now, that's a problem. Is that okay? Yes. And then what I can do is I can perform operations that can change my current current state into some other state. I can raise this hand. I can raise that hand. I can clap my hand. And you can start to see how combinatorial explosion can open up right away, right? All these things I can do. Right. And then what a problem solution is, is a sequence of operations that turn the initial state into the goal state Mm. while following what are called path constraints. What are path constraints? Sorry, I don't mean to overload you, but remember, you're a general problem solver. You don't want to solve any one problem to the detriment of your ability to solve other problems. Jerry Foto gives an example of somebody who wants to cook their lunch and so they burn down their house. And you don't go, (laughs) wow, that's brilliant. You think, wow, that's stupid. Yeah. Because although they achieved their goal, they've destroyed their ability to satisfy other goals, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you 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 have to you have a sequence of operations that turns an initial state into the goal state while obeying the path constraint. And what you're trying to do is avoid the combinatorial explosion of all the possible pathways you could pursue and all the possible information you could consult. Right. Okay. Now there are problems where we have a very helpful representation of our initial state our goal state, our actions, and our operators. So I take it for you that multiplication is a well-defined problem. If I tell you what's three times 12, you, you know what kind of problem it is right away, yep. right? Yep. You know what you know what actions you sh- are, are relevant, which ones are irrelevant. Singing is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Singing is, singing is irre- dancing is irrelevant. Right. But you know what the final result should be. It should be a number. It shouldn't be the best picture ever made of a platypus or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? It has to be. So that's a well-defined problem. You, you've got your, your, your initial, st- your representation of the initial state, the goal state, the operators are all helpful. They're clear. They're interdefining. You go, yes, right? Now, the problem we have is that a lot of our education was giving us well-defined problems. So we came to think that most of what life's problems are well-defined problems. Right. I'm getting back to consciousness. Give me a sec. <laughs> but, but most real-world problems are ill-defined problems. That's right. Let me give you an example. We're doing it right now. Have a good conversation. What's the initial state? We're silent. And what should we say? Well, crucial, important, relevant thing. Great, great, great. Right? Or, right, you know, go on a successful first date with somebody. That's a really right. ill-defined problem. Yeah. Right? Tell a joke. Tell a joke. The real. Okay. So the point is, these problems are ill-defined. So we can come into situations where we're hitting ill-defined problems. And, and, and if they're novel in being ill-defined for us, right? Or at least there's some aspect of their lack of, uh, uh, of definitiveness for us is novel. Yeah. Right? We also confront complexity because we don't know, right? We're starting to open up and we're starting to bleed into that combinatorially explosive space. Right. Is that, is that okay? Yes. Yes. And so what, so intelligence is trying to make things relevant. And then what it does is all your unconscious intelligence, this is a simplistic story, but it, it, like it's sort of the, the gist of the, the truth. What it does is it passes that initial pass of what's relevant 
to working memory. And then working memory does a higher order evaluation of, right, what of these are relevant right now because of this ill-defined problem yes. that I'm facing? And then it directs your intel, it directs your attention to what it is deeming relevant in this moment because of the novelty, the ill-definedness, the complexity. Mm. That's consciousness. Mm. Interesting. And so when you can turn an ill-defined problem into a well-defined problem, you can drop it out of consciousness back into your unconscious intelligence. You still have to do relevance realization, but you don't need all of that extra, all those extra levels of relevance realization. Right. That's what I would argue. So, and this may pertain to optimal grip later, where you're trying yes, to get yeah, yeah, a, exactly. a handle on the ill-defined what Peterson may call chaos, you're trying to get some boundaries around it to convert it into order to then Im embed it, I guess, into this intelligence that's unthinking, unconscious in a way. That is that is very well said. No. So if you, if you go with the Peterson idea of, of chaos, this would be a, a, a Verveke interpretation of it. And mm -hmm. Jordan, I had many, uh, we even uh, had a public debate about uh, the frame problem and things like that. But if you think about it, any object is actually combinatorially explosive. Mm. So, right, all what? How many properties does this possess? Exactly. Depends on the right. aim. Yeah. Depend. Right. And so, do do I want to write with this? Do I want to use it as indicating the letter I? Do I want to use it as a sphere? Do I want to use it as something like an arrow pointing to extend right. my own point? Do I, what do I want to tap? through it like a cane so i can sense right. my camera right so this this is interesting this is interesting so the 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 properties of the object they're related to the relevance of the aim or the, or the yep. purpose of the actor i guess you would say yep. and this actually ties into austrian economics a lot because the the presupposition there is that all action is an expression of value so we think is value is kind of a, a rank ordered set of priorities that whatever you're doing in any moment is what you yeah. value the most. And to the, to that point, value is never inherent to an object, right? You so can't say this pen has some intrinsic value. It is only relevant to your course of goal directed action that that yes. pen can have value. So it seems like the value is not, uh, I guess we're getting back to where it's it's subjective, right? It's like it's determined well, by you. Well, but see that there's where I'd want to challenge, mm. right? Uh, there's where I want to challenge the idea that it's uh, we're we're I think we're falling into a, a, a false Cartesian dichotomy that things are either objective or subjective. Uh, agreed. Uh, let, let, I, let, yeah. Okay. I'm, so not too, I'm not too big on that duality either, but I'm still using it in my language. <laughs> well, we are all Descartes' children. Right. Yeah. And so we all, we all have to be compassionate uh, if we're trying to struggle free from the ways in which, I mean, it's such a powerful framework. It's, yes. it's so subjective. But let's go back. Uh, I loved what you said, right? Uh, the idea of, you know, because one of the best models right now of what attention is, is it's, it's basically that higher order relevance realization in which we're prioritizing things. Yeah. So, right. And so, what consciousness does is it prioritizes an aspect of a thing. Mm. So mm. let me try, like, 
before I did what I did a few minutes ago, you probably saw this as a pencil, mm-hmm. but you can see it as a spear, right? right? Or a rocket ship if I'm playing with it, right? Yeah. So, and that's why you can say I'm conscious of it as, right? So, uh. and, and notice you're doing that. You're doing that, right? Everything is being aspectualized. You're, right? And that's how uh. consciousness is doing this very powerful relevance realization for you. What it's doing is it's it's setting out the aspects of things, right? And this is where relevance realization theory, and this is where I work with Mark and Brett, is being integrated with predictive processing models, right? You, when, you know, it's very powerful right now to say, well, what, what the brain is a prediction machine. And I think the work of Tristan and others is fantastic. But, right, you you can't predict everything about this. You have to choose an aspect under which you're going to predict it. Consciousness is helping you do that. Consciousness is helping you do that. Right. Now, why do I say it's not subjective? Okay. The graspability of this. Okay. That's that. It's a way. That's a way in which it's relevant to me. Right. Now, is the graspability of it in this? No. No, because an ant can't grasp it. Right. And the Empire State Building can't grasp it. Mm. Oh, well, graspability is in the hand. Mm -hmm. Well, no, it's not. My hand can't grasp everything. The graspability, this is what Gibson called is an affordance. Its aspect as a bottle is dependent on its graspability, which isn't in this physical object or in me, but in a real relation between them. Interesting. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Relevance, I, I coined a term, relevance is transjective. It's a real relationship between you. And, and I think that between you and so the world and you are co-making it together. Yes. Okay. Let me give you let me give you another property that you know, and it's directly relevant to what we're talking about, that is similarly transjective. Ad, being adaptive. So Darwinian evolution, creatures right. survive right. because they have adaptive features. Well, what is an adaptive, like, what, what is adaptation? What is adaptivity? Is the great white, does the great white shark possess adaptivity in itself? No. If I drop it in the Sahara Desert, it's dead. Right. It's adaptivity. And this is what, what, what 4E cognition means by being embedded. It's embedded in its environment. It, the adaptivity is not in the shark or in the environment, but in the niche. Right. The niche that is co-created by the organism and the environment. It right. is between right. the organism and the environment. That's why I wanted to challenge the subjectivity notion of relevance. Yeah, no, that's very well said. Um, and so th- this gets into that co-origination of identity, yep. perhaps, yep. and this concept of conformity, right? Where you're actually yep. conforming your hand yep. to fit the yep. bottle. And the bottle was indeed designed to conform to your hand. Yes. As yeah. well. Um, and it, so and I don't want to get us too far off track here, but what the other thing this really piques my interest on is this, the concept of emergent properties actually yeah. arises from this relational aspect, right? It's never yeah. when an ant colony is more than the sum of its parts, or I think what you call in your work, the structural functional organization or the yeah. gestalt yeah. or the... Logos. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that's the, there is something <laughs> to, and I don't know if this is not, it's not just to life. I, can, I guess it's more evident in organic life 
that it's more than the sum of its parts. But in many ways, we observe this in nature where, um, you know, any complex system effectively exhibits emergent properties of some kind. And those properties arise from the relations between the elements, not from the elements themselves. Yeah. Um, You know, that's just something I was thinking about. So maybe (laughs) try to keep working our way down the definition list here. Feel free to take it in any direction you want. You did bring up psychotechnology. Is now a good time for that one? I think so. I think so. Because, um, I mean, we do need to get back to uh, rationality and how it's neither intelligence nor consciousness. Now, we can continue that way if you prefer and come back to psychotechnology. Let me. Okay. Let's do that. Let's do that. Uh, So, intelligence is this ability to solve very problems and most of that's going on very sophisticated very dynamically self-organizing basically what it's trying to do is it's trying to figure out how things are relevant to you as an autopoetic system mm. so very quickly right autopoetic is that the word yeah self-making so uh, okay you know you know the idea of an economy is the idea of a self-organizing system mm-hmm. and it's something that is self-organizing in a scale and variant manner at many levels of analysis you see this self-organization so it's self-organization within self-organization within self-organization yes. that should be fairly well in hand for a lot of your listeners right yeah yeah yep, for of sure course, there are many natural phenomena that exhibit that as well mm-hmm. and one reason one reason why economies arise is because we're trying to structure distributed cognition to pick up on the fact that most of reality is is dynamically scale invariant self-organizing yes exactly that's that yeah so that i I don't need to go into that in detail now here's the thing there there's a difference between things being self-organizing and then them being auto poetic let me give Mm -hmm. you what i hope is a non-controversial example a tornado is self a self-organizing phenomena it's Mm -hmm. an emergent phenomena given by the self-organization given certain conditions right and you got a tornado now, notice what a tornado will do. A tornado will move into conditions that destroy it. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Now, compare a tornado to a paramecium, a living thing. Right? A paramecium is not only self-organizing, it is self-organizing. And notice how there's going to be just a, even, a, even at this level, a little bit of intelligence. It yes. is self-organized mm-hmm. to seek out the conditions that will produce it, promote it, protect it, provide for it. So. A paramecium will swim into greater concentrations of sugar and away from greater concentrations of toxin. Right. So autopoetic things self-organize in order to seek out the conditions that will maintain and promote their self-organization. You you are not just a self-organizing thing. You are an autopoetic thing. Intentionality, I guess. Distinguish there, well, and th- well, th- that's I would say yes, but that's controversial uh-huh. because, right? Well, one of the things that for e-cognitive science is in controversy, philosophical controversy with sort of more a standard cognitive science is whether or not we should attribute some very basic kind of intentionality, a kind of motor intentionality to something like a paramecium. Right. I think we should, but I, I don't want to claim that everybody just simply agrees. Mm-hmm. Now, now think about that. Because you are making yourself, you have to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. You have no option on that. That's a constitutive necessity. Now, because you are taking care of yourself, you have to care about certain kinds of information over other kinds of information. 
Right. Reed Montague said that's the difference between us and computers. Computers don't care about the information they're processing. We do. And we have to care about the information we're processing because we have to take care of ourselves. Mm. Now, as soon as I say we're caring about some information rather than others, we're back into relevance realization. Right. You see, there's a deep connection between being relevant, right? Finding things relevant. So things are relevant to you as an autopoetic being yeah. that is seeking within its environment the environmental conditions that will protect and promote it and continue to produce it. Does that make sense? Does that, yes. that all sort of thing together? Yeah. Yeah. And it, okay. it, I mean, I don't know. It, it seems like it's almost branching outside of just cognition in a way, because when you talk about caring, this sounds like yes. something that we'd associate with the heart more, you know, you're. This is the point. Yeah. This is the point. And this is one of the things in which the behavioral economics and more classical economics are in disagreement about mm. because you know behavioral economics uses bounded rationality mm -hmm. the work of simon right especially simon and and this is based on the idea that you are avoiding combinatorial explosion that idea comes right out of mm. newell and simon's work you are bounded right cognition i'll get to bounded rationality in a second yeah. you are constantly right you 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 Relevance realization is not cold calculation. It is always the expenditure of your very precious resources of attention and time in a combinatorial explosive world in yeah. order to preserve yeah. your autopoetic being. Right. Like, of course, it is just deeply affectively yes. laden, moment yes. by moment by moment. And it's and, interesting. Sorry, just the the the, the yeah. to seek out environmental conditions that preserve and promote our form, but it also that drives us to seek out some environmental conditions that actually challenge our form, right? Because you can't just go into a place of pure preservation uh, and yeah, comfort, yeah, otherwise you atrophy and die. Yeah, so yeah, there's some edge yeah, we're yeah, surfing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, you promote. Yes. So what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to get those conditions. And we talked about this earlier. Notice how we've circled around. You're mm -hmm. trying to figure out how can I connect to the environment in a way that mm. will allow me to avoid self-destruction, foolishness, yes. and afford flourishing will yeah. actually help me to promote and grow my capacity for relevance realization. Just the right so amount of wrong or something like that. <laughs> well, or the, or, or, or the right amount of uh, inaccurate prediction yeah. so that you have to increase the generalizability of your prediction. Ah, prediction. okay. Interesting. Yes. Right. So, for example, when you're trying to train neural networks to uh, yeah. learn, they'll get trapped into local minima. They'll get trapped into solutions that fit the data set they were trained on. Right. And they don't generalize well. And one of the ways... Overfitting, them, right? Yeah, overfitting to the yeah. data. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Right? Yeah. And Mark, uh, Mark and Brett and I are arguing that autism is a, is a kind of overfitting to the data. As, ah, okay. As spectrum disorder. Yeah. Um, and you can, you can overgeneralize, which is kind of what, you know, psychotic, psychotic behavior. Yes. Uh, yes. Like. Yes. Okay. So, and, th and that gets back again to getting the optimal grip between those two, right? And that is intelligence then trying to get this yeah. op optimal yeah. generalization. Well, you're trying to get, you're trying, I would argue what you're trying to do is get an optimal grip between being able to generalize mm -hmm. as much as possible, right? But think of the very, that very that famous rhyme, a jack of all trade, but a master of none, mm. right? The problem is when you overgeneralize, mm. it, like, right? So 
think about it biologically. Generalists tend to face very stiff competition when the environments are stable right. because specialists will outcompete them within the niche. Yes. Right. But it, when environments are unstable, the generalists will tend to outcompete the specialists. Yes, yes, yes. And so what you, if you want a long term, you want to, you want to constantly dynamically toggle between being a general, right? A general purpose machine and a special and a specialist. Purpose machine. So a balance yeah. between depth and breadth um, that you yeah. can toggle between. That's interesting. And you're doing it all the time. You, yeah. Let's go back to the pencil. Like, so I can zoom in if I need to get details, but I pay a price. Notice yep. the trade-off relationship. I pay a price. I can't see the whole pencil. When yep. I zoom out to see the whole pencil, I lose the detail. And you can set what's, what's the best place there. Remember what you said about value and relevance. There is no best place. Right. It depends on what I'm trying to do. Yes. Okay. If I, if I, if I, if I, if I want to see if there's a crack in it, I need to zoom in. If I want to use it as a sphere, I probably want to really zoom out. Yeah. Yes, make totally makes sense. So that okay. So intelligence in a line, then we could say is this balance between generalizability and specificity. That's one. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's often it's often in the literature between um generalization and discrimination. Okay. So again, you, you like notice that right, I, I want two different things. Uh, I want to be able to see as much as possible. But I also want to be able to see and I want to be able to distinguish things. Right. And he, here's sort of the core issue, Robert. Sometimes how things are the same is relevant, and somehow sometimes uh, how they're yes. different. Right. Relevant. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So okay. We, All right. Well, now, sorry. Go ahead. That's intelligence. Okay. Right. Now here's, I'm very uh, undiscriminated here. <laughs> intelligence <laughs> versus rationality. How do you sure. distinguish the two? Okay, so there we go. So we, we've got a lot of the intelligence is doing this amazing job of optimal gripping and dynamically zooming in and zooming out and dynamically zooming up and down in terms of how it prioritizes things. And your attention is doing that, all of that, and yeah. your memory is doing it, and all this machinery is running. Right? Yeah. It's, like it's really you know, just marvelously impressive. Yes. Um, Okay, but remember what I said. Okay, remember it's not cold calculation, especially when it starts to interact with um, consciousness, working memory. What is it when relevance comes into working memory and consciousness? That's salience. Okay. Salience is how things stand out for you. So when I did that, that caught your attention. So notice that it can capture attention, but notice attention can also drive it. If I say, look at this, now it becomes salient for you. Or your left big toe. Your left mm. big toe. Now mm. it's salient to you. You mm-hmm, see that? Mm-hmm. So see how attention is moving like this? So salience is how relevance realization comes into working memory, comes into consciousness, comes into your online interaction with the world. Here's the problem. That very process that is helping you be so adaptive is also making you prone to self-perception. Okay. Let me give you an example, a concrete example. Playing chess. What's the search space for chess? How many possible ways can a, a game of chess go? Well, it's given by the formula F to the D. The number of moves you can make at any time and the depth, the number of moves you can make, uh, the number of steps you go through. 
So yeah. it's on average, you can make 30 moves per turn. And on average, there's 60 turns per move. So that's 30 to the power of 60, which is five times 10 to the 88th power, which is greater than the number of particles in the universe. Right. So you know what you don't do? Even the best check machines, you don't check all the options. Right. You hit, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So you have heuristics and you have ways of trying to shrink that space. So one of the things you can do is shrink the space by making salient or finding salient the certain aspects of the chessboard. So a heuristic that people use for playing chess is to concentrate their attention on the center board. They bias right. their attention because they can't search all the possibilities yes. and they're, and, and they're correctly thinking, well, this, this is increasing my chances of yes. playing. And occupying, so occupying the center increases your optionality of your pieces. Right. And so I defeated somebody who was playing that way by making it look like I cared about the center board while building a peripheral strategy. Mm. And that's how I beat the game of chess. Interesting. All's fair in love and war. <laughs> yes. The very thing, the very processes that make you intelligently adaptive make you perennially and pervasively vulnerable to self-deception. Interesting. So is it a when you're channeling your cognitive resources to a specific area, then you're blinding yourself to the yep. periphery, whatever it may yep. be. And think then that, the word, that opens you up to deception. Yeah. Think about the word interest. It means inter-essay, to be within something. Mm. You, you, right? you're, you're, not just, you're focusing your attention, you're caring, you're assuming a particular identity, you're assigned, yes. like binding yourself. That's what's so meaningful. You're binding, that's the meaning. You're binding yourself deeply. And, and you have to, that's adaptivity. Right. But you pay the price for that is that, right? And you, you know how you know that this is often the case? You'll have a moment when you realize how you framed it, what you've made salient, mm. how you sized it up was the wrong way of framing it. That's the moment of insight when you go, oh, mm. I've been looking at this completely right. the wrong way. I've been, I've been at, I've been looking at the wrong aspect. I've been yes. foregrounding the wrong things. I've been focusing on the wrong, right? Right, right, right. So okay. Notice, notice what insight comes with. It comes with a flash of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, no, that's so interesting. So it's, um, you almost assumed the wrong constants or put it in the wrong, yeah. this is the frame problem, right? You look, yes, yeah, what, exactly. what is your nine dot problem, which yeah, yeah, can do without yeah. a marker board here, but it's, yeah. I, I mean, you did it twice in your lecture series and it got me both times. I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. Um, okay. So that, the, all right. Go ahead. So salience, then I think that was pretty well defined. Rationality is then related to science ah, so let let's say oh, so first of all let's understand that what you have is a, is a dynamic fluctuating salience landscape mm -hmm. things are flowing out and it's really dynamic and layered and now you can start to see how that's consciousness consciousness mm -hmm. is this dynamic textured flowing salience landscaping that you're doing all the time and it's multi you, sorry to interrupt, just one yeah, thing no, you pointed out earlier it's multi-sensorial because it's not just visual. Like I, I think no, when we're doing no. this, it, it's visual. But when you said like your left big toe, it's there's that proprioception. All of a sudden you're thinking exactly. about, yes. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's all. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, you're trying to get an optimal grip within each sense and also between all the senses together. Mm, right. 
which is like consilience that makes it yeah, more true for it. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. It raises the plausibility, the intelligibility of it. Mm. Maybe we can go back to that. Mm. Okay, so now, rationality is to use your intelligence to develop skills of attention and consciousness so that you can overcome as much as possible your proneness to self-deception. Mm, okay, so a debugging of sorts. Yes. Oh. Yes, an online debugging. All right. Okay. So you, you basically use your intelligence to solve the problem of learning is just problem solving. Yeah. Of, uh, of, you know, acquiring the skills of attention, aspectualization, salience, landscaping, consciousness, right? So that you will overcome the biases or the proneness to self-deception that is built into the functioning of your intelligence. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Is there any relationship between, because one thing I've, I've thought was super interesting is the concept of the logos. Yes. I know it has very deep meaning, but um, two Greek translations of it are word or ratio. Right. And clearly um, when you think of words is most words having a value or definition in relationship to other words. So it's kind of a, a ratio of meaning, if you will, between two words, everything except, you know, holding up the rock and saying rock, all the other words are, are um, relational in that way. And then the connection there for me that is very um, germane to markets is that prices are ratios of exchange. Yes. Right? Instead of saying that this house costs 11 cars you say this house is $440,000, which is equal to eleven dollars $40,000 cars. So we use yeah. money as a common language of numeracy to express these exchange ratios uh, with greater simplicity in a more economized way. So is, my question there is rationality, is that yeah. related to the concept of ratio, which is inherent to the logos? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. And, and, and that, that, wow, that was really good. I really like that. That's an excellent. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. okay. Thinking so, about it for a while. <laughs> it shows. It shows. Thanks. So the original meaning of logos is to gather things together so that they belong together. Mm. So even when you're classifying things, like if I were, you know, like I hold up this and this, and you see them belonging together because they're both writing instruments, that's logos, mm. right? And, and so you can see how logos, right? The, it's very much related to this finding things relevant. You, you basically, when you're finding two things relevant to each other, you're, you're doing a, a way in which they're both relevant to you, mm -hmm. right? Right. What you're doing, right? You know, you know, um, because in terms of physics, these could be very, these could be made out of different kinds of matter, different electromagnetic properties, right? right. It, but you see them as the same because of the way in which they're relevant to you. Yes, right? yes, right? yes, yes. Okay, so that's logos. And then we do the same thing with words. We bring words together and we see them as belonging together because they fit me, they fit to me and help me fit the world, mm. right? <laughs> right? Yep. So that's, that's, that's the word, that's the logos there. So you can see it in categorization, you can see it in speech. In Re in, in the ancient sense of rationality that has to do with ratio 
and, and mm-hmm. hopefully this will catch for you. I'm proportioning my attention oh, and my okay. caring so that I can seek out, I can enhance, I can enhance and improve my ability to seek out those conditions that will promote my flourishing and reduce my foolishness. Interesting. Okay. So it, it is finding the proper ratio of these various resources and allocating yeah. them such yes. that you're optimizing rationality. That's why I call relevance realization theory a bioeconomic model of intelligence. Interesting. Bioeconomic. Okay. Wow. 